hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Well, hello and welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. My name is Toby Haydoke and I've been invited here by the owner of said penknife and presumably said hamster. It's Joe Ford. Hello, Joe. Hello there. <laughs> I had a marvellous time watching episode one. Yes, I we didn't really talk about Doctor Who and the Silurians. <laughs> it is the way with this thing. Yeah, it's just a it's just a jumping off point, isn't it, to talk about uh, the wonder. That's the beautiful thing is that I thought I'd eventually, you know, run out of things to say doing commentaries and podcasts and all sorts of other things. But it's there's so much because it. I think because Doctor Who is such a personal thing, there's so much that you can you can you can use a, a piece of visual stimulation or a piece mm. of music or a scene or a monster or whatever. Or as we have done with episode one, the book. Um, which has nothing really to do with what we're watching in in many ways, uh, and it and it takes you off into sort of all sorts of different places. That's uh, that's the wonderful thing about Doctor Who, and I guess why uh, it it's, it sustains itself across so many different internet platforms. It always amuses me because um, I think we always think the world sort of revolves around us, don't we? But uh, when you, you you know when you look at what's tr- trending on Twitter, like throughout the whole world and sometimes it'll be like sergeant benton why is that that trending and it's because because doctor who fans seem to dominate the internet i'll tell you my heart stops every time tom baker's trending i i you know i Uh, horror and i'm there quickly and you know it's usually for some fabulous reason yes it's because yeah somebody's he said something or somebody's unearthed a clip or something god bless him Uh, We are here for Doctor Who and the Silurians episode two. Toby, this is called Doctor Who and the Silurians. Yes, it is. That's uh, and and it is. There's no getting away from that because it's the it's the on-screen title, and presumably it's a mistake. But um, it is called Doctor Who and the Silurians. Uh, And uh, there's the wonderful thing, isn't there, with season seven? Every title is done slightly differently. So Spearhead from Space, uh, it's it, the title comes out at you just a little bit. It starts yeah. small and grows a little bit bigger. Um, Doctor Who and the Silurians, well, it's odd because it's called Doctor Who and the Silurians. Ambassadors of Death, we all know the Ambassadors, kapow, of death, <laughs> which is one <laughs> oh, of my death. favorite things it's great. ever. Uh, and then in, in, Infer- Inferno is in front of the... Uh, you know, it 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 the the words start off blurred, and then then it forms the word inferno in front of stock footage of uh, of a volcano. So so each season seven story has its own uh, unique aspect to the story title, and the most traditional presentation, this one, which is just the story title over the titles, adds the word Doctor Who, <laughs> adds the words Doctor Who, which uh, is, I mean, I I I love the fact that the show has these little quirks that we can sort of debate and get to go. Uh, what it boils down to is it's 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 sort of a kind of a cock up, but it it, it throws o- open a, a, a number of questions and it's quite a fun thing that it exists in that way, you know. I mean, it is one that seems to sort of reoccur, isn't it? Doctor Who is required. Doctor Von Wur. Quee, quee, quee. Yes. Who, who, who? Yeah, indeed. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
Um, he signs himself Doctor W, doesn't he? In uh, in uh, in the Underwater Menace. I mean, it's a shame this was one of the early books because I'm sure with the later books, didn't they? They stopped doing the Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, Doctor Who and the Android Evasion. It was then Doctor Who dash, you know, Four to Doomsday. It wasn't Doctor Who and the Four to Doomsday. I would have loved it if it had been Doctor Who dash Doctor Who and the Silurians, <laughs> because which is what it really would have, should have been called, or Doctor Who and the Doctor Who and the Silurians to give it its proper title. Um, uh, you realise, but, um, but of course, I and, I and I love the fact that th those early Target books had different titles as well. Mm. I mean, I still sort of think of the Moon Base as Doctor Who and the Cybermen. Um, I think Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon is a much better title than Colony in Space. Well, it's a much better story, I think, as well. Yeah, indeed. And and yes, a part of this will always be for me Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, you know, featuring featuring Major Barker um, <laughs> and, you know, Ockdell Oc and Morka and Kato, the Silurians, uh, not old Silurian, young Silurian, Silurian scientist. Do you think Malcolm Hulk liked giving these stories another pass, like being being able to write the novels? Well, I I wonder if he just figured there were it was there were better ways of telling it in prose, particularly his POV stuff that he does. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know, there's a there's a line in in episode one, isn't there, about Major Baker? Where he says, "Well, he slipped up a few years ago." Well, in the book, you get the flashback, don't you? Doesn't he? He. he uh, uh, he, he shoots an IRA gunman or something, or uh, or he um, he shoots an unarmed man or something, um, and uh, but I think the IRA are mentioned as well, which I remember when I went back to it, thinking, oh, that's a bit. That's a, I'm not sure I want the IRA and Doctor Who to exist in the same universe. It seems like seems like a bit of a a, a bit of a clash there. I always felt with the Doomsday but, but, Weapon, uh, he felt as if sort of, I don't know, maybe something that he was trying to say was lost in translation, because that felt like an angry book when I read it. It's it, it's very clever. I love that chapter about Captain Dent with his IMC flat. It's terrifying, IMC. isn't it? Well, yeah. it's, it's superb. Um and and I and I love his laudable attempts. As I say, I, I didn't quite get them when I was younger, and it was only when I came back to them. The um you know, of, of telling stuff from the different alien points of view. And of course, all the bits you remember from the Hulk books, Trenchard's safety catch, Butler's oh, yeah. scar, uh, are not there. Are not, are not there. So quite often when you watch uh, a Hulk, and let's not forget, this is the first solo Hulk story. And he only writes hmm. solo stories in the Pertwee era. He is the sort of Pertwee writer in a way. Um, and you know, a lot of that that we think of as the, I, I know Barry Letts was very much an envir environmentalist, but, but, but Hulk was, uh, you know, Hulk was very left wing and, and, and I think he probably feels he can get away with that a bit more in the books maybe than in the, than in the TV versions. Uh, or, or again, maybe it's those inner monologues, but he's certainly trying to do very interesting things, which, doesn't always happen in his TV stories, which do seem sometimes slightly, slightly padded at, at times. Some of his six parters, um, or slightly, you know, people talking in a room. But the conversations again seem to be slightly more interesting in the in the books. But that's maybe because we get the inner monologue. I don't know. I, you know, even even I think Miss Dawson and Doctor Quinn 
you, you get slightly more insight into them book. in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've it's yeah. That quoted line about um, oh gosh, I can't remember it now. Is it uh, when did I uh, she's she was always thinking, uh, when will I meet the man that I'm gonna marry, and when does she stop thinking that and think, you know, when did when did that opportunity when when did that slip by? That's so sad, yeah, yeah, desperately sad. I always remember as well. I've got to make a point for for, um, the first chapter of Invasion of the Dinosaurs or the Dinosaur Invasion. Sorry, that poor fella. Shuey McPherson. (laughs) And I I think don't you get a chapter in the book of this where it's it's Jock Tangy, the the taxi driver that uh, that uh, Masters gets a taxi because he has to get off the train. And none of that happens in this in the story at all but you get this you meet this taxi driver you get his sort of you know his little inner story and by the end of it he's dead you go oh there we go davis thing of, of of finding a contemporary character and telling this sort of absurd situation through it it makes yeah. it real yeah, yeah it does it well, does should we skip into episode two yes all right then uh are we counting into it? Are you going to do it? What do I? Well, you do it. Go on. You do it. We okay. Well, we're going to start watching <laughs> episode two of Doctor Who and the Cave Monster. Sorry, Doctor Who and the Silurians. Oh. Uh, in three, two, one. Boom. Uh, and I do like this title sequence. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the early title sequences. Um, I do think uh, um, when Barrelets brought in the sting you know the sting that leads into the yes credits that was the savviest move of perhaps any producer ever made yeah yeah and it's a bit odd watching stories without it isn't it now because it's so it's so much a part of it the one that stands out uh, so... is um spirit from space episode one when the soldier sort of shouts out you know who told you to fire and then, it, and then the music just sort of cuts in, and it, it's so jarring. Well, it's not just that as well. Doesn't he say, isn't it the only Doctor Who cliffhanger to cut off somebody being called a twat? Yeah. Doesn't he go, who told you to fire, you stupid? And it's, it's like the, the music's coming to stop the big... Thank God, yeah. <laughs> Quality <laughs> control. Yeah. But, of course, this was uh, Baronet's first produced story. So this, this yeah. Yeah. Is- yeah, he um, he tells a marvelous story in that autobiography about his budget that that he got sort of the news of his budget through, and uh, he said, "Well, I can work with this. This is very generous." And then he realizes the decimal points in the wrong point. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> well, look, I mean, this is a this is a very nice cave. It's very nicely lit as well, because um, of course it's very hard to light a cave properly because you know m- most caves lighting sy- system is, is is would be inimical to being able to see it in a drama do you know what i mean uh although i watched i watched a film called the descent very recently mm. which uh, uh, it's, a, it's about 20 years old now but um that's that's where i am in my modern viewing and and i was shocked to discover that that was all in a set because it looked totally believable it was beautifully done um, but I think for you know seventies Doctor Who, I think the, the 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 cave sets in this are very good, 
I think Peter Davison says, doesn't he, in the Earthshot commentary, like, Cave's work in Doctor Who, it's a dark, sort of claustrophobic location that you can kind of do on the cheap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's a, yes, there's a series of Earthshot's got good caves. I, I suppose you could say mine is a good cave. Oh, I like, I like, I like that. We just sort of walks in when they're all, they're all, Sort of panicking about where he is, he comes and goes. Hello, um, <laughs> I like all of that. He's still got his moments of shock. Do you know? I was just thinking then. Do you know? I'm having a good evening when I'm chatting away with a Doctor Who fan about the best caves in Doctor Who stories. Yeah. But the worst, I think, the, the the worst example of this is, of course, when you have no budget left at all and you're having to CSO everybody into caves. Yeah. Yeah, that that's probably seemed like a great idea at the time, and uh, and it simply doesn't work. Um, I feel so sorry for the the people making Doctor Who at around that time. Um, you know, the seventies were were uh, the late seventies were were tough, weren't they? Whereas uh, this, you know, this this stuff here, partially the 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 present day Earth setting helps as well. But you know, these these look as good. If not better, you watch other drama from around this time. You know, Doctor Who looks good. It it can hold a it can hold a candle to every to anything else. You know, supposedly more adult fare like Doomwatch doesn't look any any more realistic than Doctor Who. You know, it's funny you should bring up Doomwatch because I was just going to ask you a question. Was this uh, were they all at the same time? Uh yeah, because um yeah, Doomwatch at the same time period. Yes, because um. Doomwatch shares um, spaceship models, doesn't it, with um, Ambassadors of Death? Oh, of the, the Doomwatch episode yeah. "Reentry Forbidden." It 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 shares it shares some of the production, which I think is a very smart move. Well done, everybody! Um, and you know that's lots of men in a room yelling at each other. That's essentially what what I quite like drama. That's people in a room yelling at each other to be fine. Um, Terrors, Dix tells. Um, uh, attentions are fraying. That'll do me. Um, Terrors, Terrence Dix, in a particularly naughty mood, um, tells that story about how the Doomwatch production team got, you know, said, cast your eye over the storylines, you know, just so we're not doing the same thing. And he had a quick look and he went, well, I wouldn't touch any of them. You know, like, that's fine. We're, we're good. You know, <laughs> bless him. <laughs> Yes, well, well, and of course, this also having been, um, uh, you know, exiled to Earth, there was the famous, uh, I think it was Malcolm Holt, wasn't it? Famously said to Terence Dix, "Well, you've got two stories, you know, Invasion of Earth and Mad Scientist," uh, and this idea that actually the enemy is the creatures who were here before mankind is such a good idea um and throws in with it moral dilemmas and throws in with it uh um ideas about you know who deserves what an identity identity and nationhood and and that's i remember that very strongly in the book that uh major barker um when he gets captured you know he says i die for england and st george he's he's uh hulk in the books has a real thing about patriotism which comes out it, it, in Trenchard in uh, The Sea Devils, in fact, Captain Hart says, doesn't he, that uh, Trenchard's 
you know main characteristic is his patriotism and that's what the the, the master is able to exploit that's and i love the way the silurians are shot in this episode because one of the things they don't do is show us the full creature until episode three, which means that they're at the end of episode three, which means there are lots of different ways of having them in shadow. Uh, and I think they work really well. And Timothy Coombe, I think, shoots them superbly on film and uh, in the studio. But yeah, Mal but Malcolm Hulk has this this sort of thread about where he, he, he seems quite obsessed with the idea of what it means to be patriotic. And, uh, and, and he thinks of it as quite a foolish thing, I think, which is which but 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 he's not unsympathetic to to his patriotic people he 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 makes it totally understandable from their point of view but he makes it a sort of sad and flawed characteristic and i think that's very interesting i certainly wouldn't like that that moment in doctor and the sea devils the novel that moment where the safety catch is uh shifted i don't think he he's entirely unsympathetic would he because he wouldn't add a moment like that that it doesn't redeem the character but it's it's you know it spares him the humiliation yeah and and he and he has scenes from that character's point of view where he's you know sort of mourning doesn't he more he mourns the loss of empire or the you know mourns the uh and and and, and he doesn't he doesn't make it a sort of cruel cruel or bullish patriotism it's more a, a a lost man having something to anchor himself with and that's quite you know that's quite sympathetic and that's quite you, you know quite a, a a a sort of decent take on on what you know what what ends up being that character's character's fatal flaw you know the reason I brought up Doomwatch is because I've <clears throat> done a watch of it recently and I couldn't find uh, a decent role for a woman anywhere in that main cast at all. And yet I think the depiction of Liz Shaw in this season is pretty groundbreaking. And I don't know how we've gone this far without mentioning Liz Shaw. <laughs> well, indeed. I, th I mean, I think it's funny when I, when I was growing up, Liz was the sort of companion who fell through the cracks, really, um, because I think you know we knew that she'd been sort of let go after one season, didn't even have a proper leaving scene, uh, and you know all the behind the scenes talk was well, you you know it, it didn't work having somebody as the Doctor's equal. Uh, I and I'm I love I love Baronets and Terrence Dicks, and I have have respect for them both, and I love I love Joe Grant, but I I think you could have made this work if you'd wanted to um you know they did they do it you know so it's a, it's amazing how often the doctor who companion is is devised to be um a change from your usual doctor who companion because zoe is not a screamer really we forget the bit in um uh the mind robber where she screams on the tardis console because that's a sort of surreal mind fuck if you like um but but Zoe is not a particularly screamy companion, uh, and she often uses her intelligence, and she often patronizes the Doctor, uh, and 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 then you know straight after Zoe, you've got Liz, who is the the Cambridge educated type. She's a Doctor. Um, it's the two Doctors, um, uh, and and Caroline John totally convinces. Um, she goes off and does stuff on her own. Uh, and can have conversations with the doctor as an equal. 
Um, and yeah, I love Liz. I think she's great. Do you think Zoe could have stepped from six to seven? Obviously, she, like she had a scientific brain. Because there was there was mooted, wasn't it, at one point that Wendy Pavery could possibly stay on. Oh. Uh... Well, I wonder how that would have worked out because I think they they chose to leave in the end, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, but um, you you don't know whether if they said, "Oh, well, we're actually not going to leave." Whether I think it kind of needs the clean sweep for the exile story to work, really. What's going to exile the Doctor to twentieth century Earth? What Terence Dick says about the companion, or about Caroline John, is you know she needs a good meaty role. You know I think it's Hound of the Baskervilles or something like that. They gave her like a a good acting role in one of the classic serials. Um, but then that rather suggests that the the companion can't be a good meaty role, and I think she is given that in this season. Yeah, yeah, uh, I. <laughs> You know, I can see where they're coming from. I think they probably wanted to make their job a lot easier, which, you know, and there are certain, certain, if if the companion's doing different things from what the Doctor is doing, that means you can get two different stands, strands of your story going at the same time. If what the companion and the Doctor can do is interchangeable, that is slightly harder. Um, and having somebody like Joe, who is, Joe isn't stupid, but she is a bit of a klutz uh, and she, 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 she doesn't have the intellectual knowledge and the scientific knowledge mm. that Liz has, although she is an escapologist and can do that in a way. <laughs> we, we forget that about Joe sometimes, that actually she's supposed to be sort of, she's supposed to be a bit James Bondy, although she's not remotely. Um, but, but I, you know, you can see the logic of it. You can see why. And again, a lot of what happens with Doctor Who is a matter of expedience. You're trying to do the thing. Writing Doctor Who is hard. Establishing a new set of characters for each new story. Establishing a new world, if you like, even if it's still in 20th century Earth. You're still establishing a new world because it's a new base. It's a new set of people or it's a it's a new style of, of story because each story has its own sort of atmosphere and rules, really. The, you know, the demons has different rules mm -hmm. from Colony and Space, even though they're in the same season the rules of the storytelling are are different the atmosphere is different um so you have to establish all of those things you want your basic ingredients to kind of write themselves really because otherwise you've got another thing that you're having to take care of um because i i think one of the things that's underestimated about doctor who is how hard it is to do it well and how lucky we are that it's invariably done well because it's really hard to write a science fiction story from scratch you know with the same core characters um and 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 shake that up every four to six weeks i have to establish a whole new set of eric's award who said like you know he kept getting in writers and they just couldn't do it like respected writers you know um pj hammond for goodness sakes you know Yes, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day when they were talking about, you know, who who sh who should you get in to? Who would you like them to get in to write for Doctor Who? And you go, well, oh, well, you'd think somebody, you know. I remember being so excited when Stephen Fry and Paul Abbott uh, and S Simon Nye, his script did get made. Richard uh, Curtis's script did get made, but I I believe that you know 
there was pr probably quite a lot of rewriting went on. And you said these 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 are unquestionably amazing writers. But I think actually who you want is that person that's a brilliant no, Stephen Fry's didn't work. Paul Abbott's didn't work. You, I think you want that person from Casualty that's that's that knows the nuts and bolts of getting a practical television script on but is bored of writing, oh, why get some cowboy to mend the roof when I could do it myself? You've never loved me anyway, Dad. Uh, <laughs> and then falls off the roof uh, and then learns, I do actually love you. I just didn't know how to express it. But now I can that you've got a roof tile impaled up your jacksey. Um, and it has to be removed by the <laughs> fairhead. But, but, but something well, you've got to be fed up of. <laughs> <laughs> That's every episode of Casualty, isn't it? Oh, okay. um, but I think you want somebody who can do the nuts and bolts of television, and then sort of break out and go. And now I can use, I can, I can use all of that experience and that practical savviness, and have fun with the jokes that I can do, have fun with the scares that I can do, and and introduce aliens and things that I can make up the rules for. And that's why I think Robert Holmes is for me the best classic series. Uh, who writer because uh, he's he's a great nuts and bolts writer but who who speaks the language of Doctor Who the humor and the horror and intertwines them both so so well um it's funny so I, I think I think sometimes to, um, you can look too hard so I went straight to Terence Dix when you said that because you were saying like straight off a soap he used to write for Crossroads didn't he he definitely understood the nuts and bolts of telling a good story he could do the scares he could do the humor and he could do it at a pace as well. It's, you know, easy to forget what a lick these were going out at, being made out and broadcast. Absolutely. Now, this actor here, Gordon Richardson, uh, he, he was one of your lot, Joe. He was a friend of Quentin Crisp. Oh, was he? Uh, and uh, yes, was quite a famous, famously camp entertainer was uh, Gordon Richardson, who would have great big parties at his house. Uh, so, I don't think we could have made it doesn't... work, you know. <laughs> uh but oh he does it didn't last long in this uh and and that's nancy jackson who was bernard hepton's wife uh so there we go it's that's not often you get this sort of... oh and the let's not forget the da oh. oh my word look who's here ah <laughs> oh, love him absolutely love him i think he's great in this as well I mean, every time I think of Paul Darrow, it's not Blake Seven I think of. I just think of save your breath for the time, Lash Doctor. <laughs> there's somebody has put up a clip. There's a clip that keeps being retweeted of him on Twitter. And is it is it in Cluedo or Who Done It or something where he comes on and goes, my wife has been murdered. <laughs> uh, and and it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's Darrow to the max. <gasps> it's Darrow turned up to 11 and it's glorious. But did, <laughs> did you see? Then they were asking, right? Can other people film this and put it underneath? And I watched pretty much every one. Well, nobody could best Darrow <laughs> in terms of pure ham. He had it. I, I love it. I love it. I and and but the sad thing is because he enjoys that kind of acting, it's easy to then go, oh, he was like that all the time. But there are some points in Blake Seven where he does nothing and there's so much going on underneath and and I, I remember when I was chatting to Clive Merrison he described himself he said I've always been quite vivid and I love that description of an actor 
being vivid. Um, but that that doesn't. But but I I I like to watch performances that are that 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 have have vivid vividity vividity and uh, and and have a lot of color. But I don't I I don't necessarily think that that always means unbelievable. In the same way that Shakespearean acting is quite vivid, but it's dealing with great metaphysical properties and it's dealing with more than being i woke up this morning and i was a bit sad it's i woke up this morning and the very core of my soul has been rent asunder by cruel fate and that requires a bit more vividness vividness yeah vividness that's that's easier to say um but it doesn't mean it's not true just because it's big it doesn't mean there's no truth to it Mm -hmm. And, and so i quite like those sort of larger performances because so long as the the emotion behind it is truthful. Um, you can, or, or it's an actor having a lot of fun uh, and being entertaining. Well. You're after two two very different things. But I think sometimes Darrow in Blake Seven is is so brilliant and inscrutable. But he, because he etches it so large mentally, um, you know, there's, you get real meat from it. I love it. Sometimes the contrast. Is what makes it work as well because uh one of my favorite episodes of blake seven is orbit and you've got darrow there with john savadon and they're camping it up to the high heavens somewhere in the rafters but then later in the episode you've got him hunting villa through the shuttle and it is absolutely Uh, terrifying i i remember it uh from from when it was first broadcast i remember it from my youth yeah and it was uh, and 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 doesn't he say we, we need to get rid of another 70 kilos or something and or villa goes, weighs 70, villa weighs 70 kilos, kilos. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> but i remember the camera pausing on him and I've, i was going no we're not going here surely not with the regulars Oh, great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to quickly talk about Tim Coon. Yes. Because he, he wasn't around for long. I think he directed two smashing stories. Um, but did. in this episode alone, we've had a couple of unusual choices. We've had that brilliant um, POV shot of the Silurian uh, going. And I don't think yeah. we had a lot of that beforehand. Or not that I can recall. Not really. We've we've had we've had shots through the Dalek eye stalk uh, as as early as uh, the first Dalek story, but um, but but not that many. But no, that that uh, that and somebody who knows about science said to me, "Yeah, but that's not how they see." And I was like, "You can know too much sometimes." <laughs> I think it, it's fine. It has a sense of sort of immediacy and drama about it, you know, that you're seeing through the eyes of the wounded Silurian. But then we just had a sequence there a second ago where, um, is it Squire's Farm? Yeah. And and there's a fade into the morning and then there's a sort of establishment of the farm. And I don't think we ever really had much of that either. So he's doing unusual things. He is. And I love all of his stuff on film. And I, ju- I just love having a Doctor Who story set in, in front of a load of bales of hay. I don't know. It just feels sort of fresh and real and interesting. Uh, and yes, that morning, and they even have the music sort of yeah. has the, it's sort of quite bird-like, the music, isn't it? It's like, we're all up with the lark kind of thing. But And we still haven't seen the Silurian. And we were talking when the Silurian emerged from the cave and the sun, there was a sudden, you know, the sun blotted out the, the picture and you just got the silhouette. And that's oh, all... That's- you know, that's all fantastic film camera work 
all of this stuff off of this this would not be so good if it was in a in an electronic studio but it's beautiful here and of course we've just seen we know what happened to the last person that was seen from this point of view and claude was that he got killed um so that's a, that's a cracking uh cracking cliffhanger um i mean and i think it works better for being on film as as we move on we have you know cliffhangers where companions are being menaced like let's say lala ward in warrior's gate as the thorough hand comes towards her Liz Shaw was just mauled by that creature. <laughs> like he tossed her yeah. head, scratched her face. Yeah, he did. Uh, and from that gorgeous point of view. Now, again, you, you, you presume the point of view has partially come because he's going, well, I've got seven episodes. I'm going to hold my monster back as long as possible. Um, but it but it means he gets, you know, very inventive and creative with it. Uh, yeah. And uh, and it looks he's he's he is very good. Tim Coombe. He's a he's an excellent director. And I I feel sad that uh, because he overspent on the mind of evil, he was not allowed to return. Uh, and I know he felt very sad about that as well, because uh, uh, I I think he is a he he would be he would be far better remembered as a director. I think if he'd done more than the two stories, because you know everyone I, well I think anyone with any sense loves Michael Ferguson, and he only did four stories. Um, yeah. Uh, and and I think Mike Michael is rightly seen as one of the the A list Doctor Who directors. And I think I think uh, I'd have liked to have seen, uh, you know, d d if I can imagine if if Tim had done some of some of those later stories, uh, we might be thinking the same about him as well. I don't think he's afraid of the scale of either of the two stories that he's telling. And you know, there's a lot happening in the Silurians. You know, when we head into you know Plague City later on in the yeah. story and then in the mind of evil you know we're we're, we're gonna scale the walls of a prison in you know, <laughs> you know five yeah, he's, he's, space it's 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 big stuff it's big ambitious stuff he's he's good at the hardware he's good at making it look like uh you know like feel like you know a tough action adventure uh and it's fine to do that because you've got you've got you know the jokes and but we being a dandy and that that all helps to Diluted and make it a bit more Doctor Who-y. Although you know, I I do I have some sympathy with Terence Dix, who says that season seven isn't Doctor Who because it doesn't have quite enough of the fantastical within it. Uh, he feels it's a bit too close to Quatermass, and I I I I I have some sympathy with that. But I I I, I do for me, season seven is my is is probably my favourite um, chunk of Pertwee. There is a um, intriguing coupling made in the Spearhead from Space commentary with uh, Terence Dix and Derek Sherwin where yeah. Terence Dix finally gets to take Derek Sherwin to task for one, stranding him on Earth and for two, lumbering him with seven parters. <laughs> Have you heard that yeah. one? Uh, I, 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 do you know what? I That was one I, I stopped listening to and I don't think I've ever picked back up on. Um, because I know they'd hoped to have Derek Martinez on that, and it, oh, and it okay. didn't work that out. Because sadly, Derek Martinez was not was not well, um, which is a which is a real shame. Um, but I know there was no love lost between in real. You know, the, I, I I'm sure they were very professional there. But I I know that that Terence was not a great fan of Derek Sherwin for sure. Um, uh, I think they had. Uh, you know, I think the the working methods were were slightly different, shall we say? 
and uh, possibly uh, what happened uh, with uh, with uh, Derek uh, Sherwin being given another assignment at Barrelettes coming in. Maybe that was best all round. Uh, oh, I think so. And of course, it creates the magic partnership of Terence Dix and Barry Letts, which are one of the great Doctor Who double acts, you know. Uh, and uh, and I, and I love the fact that they, you know, they remained friends. And uh, I, you know, I can't think of one without the other, really. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I adore, them. and I adore them both. You know, marvelous, marvelous fellas. <laughs>